Good morning. Find your way to Matthew 11. We are completing a series that we started just after Easter called Tearing Down Strongholds. And I got to tell you, I'm so glad to be done with this series. A um, couple of reasons. I have a really short attention span, and this has been about a 12-week series. And I told the group last night, I'm like, I'm so tired of watching that intro video. I feel like I've seen it like 50 times because I have. And... Um, it's also been a hard series because we've been dealing with issues and strongholds in our lives that um, sometimes aren't comfortable. I know it's led to some good conversations in small group. It's led to um, some interesting cases in soul care and different things, just dealing with things like anger and grumbling and complaining and hopelessness and so many things that I think hit people where they're at. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the issue of doubt. And we're going to be actually jumping between two passages. I don't normally do this, but we're going to be in Matthew 11 and John 20. So put a piece of paper in one so you can flip back and forth. If you have an app and you're using your phone, I have no idea how you do that. But I'll try to have the verses on the screen. And I don't know if some of you struggle with self-doubt or lack of self-confidence, but it's interesting. Sometimes spouts of self-confidence can come really quick. And uh, two weeks ago, I was headed out the door to the vertical men's rally I was going to teach on Friday night. And as I was leaving, my wife looked at me and said, honey, you're not wearing that, are you? And um, I'm like, yeah, this is what I was going to wear. I kind of had a long sleeve t-shirt and I was wearing, um, they're kind of like soccer pants. They're capris, but they're manpris. And, and they go longer than shorts. They're under your knees. And I actually think they're pretty cool. And I felt pretty good about the way that I looked. And she's like, no. Um, I'm like, why not? She's like, well, they make your legs look stubby. You look short. And I'm, I'm like, I think the reason I look short is because I'm short. I don't think it's the, I don't think it's the pants. But we, we, we bantered on this. She was right, so we changed clothes. And then I got to the vertical men rally. I'm feeling a little bit better about myself. I go into the uh, dining room for dinner. And I walk up to this table. And there's two guys there. We'll call them... Um, Todd and Tim, because that's their names. And um, I walk up to them, and they're like, wow, are you wearing your grandkid's hat? And I'm like, no, it's my hat. What's the deal? They're like, that thing looks really small on your big head. And, and <laughs> now, now, this is a trigger for me, because I was born with an abnormally large head in proportion to the rest of my body. And, and I remember back in first grade, I don't know if you, you know, you have to be a little older to remember these things, but they used to do like shadow drawings of your profile and they'd hang them on the wall for art class. You guys remember those? In my first grade class, true story, my head was the only one that took two pieces of construction paper. <laughs> it was very easy to see me. So like, it's like, now I'm like, oh my goodness. So I, I go to my car, I get rid of that hat, I find another hat, I get ready. And, and I know you're like, are you that emotionally frail? Yes, I am. <laughs> and, and so by the time I get on stage, I'm like, I've lost all confidence in the way that I look standing up here. Doubts are funny that way. You can be rolling along and then something happens and you lose your self-confidence. can happen in business. Go through some rough markets, rough seasons, and all of a sudden, you, like you've got really doubts that you have any idea that you know what you're doing. It can happen in ministry. It can happen, well, you see it a lot in sports. You, you see an athlete lose their confidence. Um, just in the last week, uh, I was watching a little bit of the NBA Finals, and there's a young man, three-time All-Star, he plays for Philadelphia, and he lost confidence in his ability to shoot the ball. And, and it wasn't that he kept shooting and missing shots. He wouldn't shoot. And um, it's a mess when you lose confidence. In golf, it's called the yips. 
And uh, last week I was watching the, the last nine holes of the U.S. Open, some of the best golfers in the world, and, and you could just see doubt and self-confidence destroy some of these guys' games. They hit some of the worst shots since the last time I went golfing, and it was so enjoyable to watch. <laughs> but the yips, self-doubt, loss of self-confidence. Do, do you guys know what I'm talking about? And, and what I want to talk to you about in this time, the time that we have this morning, is on this topic of doubt, but I'm not really concerned about self-doubt. I'm worried about God-doubt. When we start to have serious questions about who God is, is there a God? Is God good? Does God keep his promises? Because I think these doubts impact us more than we think. The, the big idea is simply this. Doubt is driving you somewhere. And, and as we finish this series, there's a part of me that I wish I would have preached this message as the first message in the series, because when I look at many of the other strongholds, at the, at the root of some of those strongholds is this idea of doubt in God. And, and if we don't deal with our doubts, if we don't know how to process these seasons where we lose confidence or have doubts, if, if we don't handle them properly, what happens is... Those doubts actually form a foundation. They begin to strengthen the other strongholds that we are so desperate to tear down in our lives. So we're going to look at two passages this morning, one in Matthew, one in John, two accounts in the Gospels of men who went through seasons where they lost their confidence in God when they had some serious doubts. I'm going to pick it up in Matthew 11, verse 2. It says this, now, when John, this is John the Baptist, this isn't the disciple John, this is John the Baptist. It says, now, when John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So John's in prison, he turns to his disciples, he says, get to Jesus, and ask him, are you really the one, are you the Messiah? John's having some doubts. In John 20, verse 24 we read, just to get you up to speed on where we are in the story, Jesus has already gone to the cross, he's already resurrected, and he has appeared to his disciples. But in verse 24, we read this, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples saw him, Thomas was not there. Verse 25, so the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord, but Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails... And place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So I just want you to consider what we're reading here. Two men having doubts about who Jesus is. One of them is asking, Are you the promised Messiah? The other asking, I don't believe that he's actually risen from the dead. So both men are having doubts, but let's not just look at the fact that these men are having doubts. Let's look at the bigger thing. Who's having the doubts? This is John the Baptist. This is Thomas, a disciple. Consider John for a moment. In Luke 1.17, before he's born, an angel appears to his parents and says to his dad, Zacharias, that John is called specifically by the Lord, says this, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John the Baptist will spend his entire life telling people that the Messiah is about to come. It's interesting, he is such a talented, gifted, powerful speaker 
the people began to think that he was the Messiah. Luke 3.15 says, And the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John will, Jesus will say in just a couple verses in Matthew 11, verse 11, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So, so this guy having doubts just isn't anybody. This is John the Baptist, who Jesus just said was the greatest man. Now, to put that in a little bit of context, I want you to understand, up until this point, there had been many prophets in the Old Testament that had said, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And then there had been 400 years of silence where the prophets had not spoken to the nation of Israel until John came on the scene. And then John also, like his pre, or the previous prophets of the Old Testament, he's saying, the king is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming. But I believe the reason that Jesus calls him the greatest of all men is he just didn't get to say the king is coming. He was the guy that got to say the king is here. He was the greatest because of his position, because of the tasks that he was called to. Best analogy I can make for it is in the next few weeks in July, and I think leaking into August, we're going to be watching the Tokyo Olympics, right? And, and what happens before the Olympics, I'm sure this is going on probably even now, it happened in our country when we hosted, uh, that torch, there's a huge ceremony, and often the Olympic torches kind of run across the country in anticipation to the start of the games, and various people carry them, some athletes and local celebrities and whatever, but what happens when you get to the lighting of the torch, that's usually not just some random dude, right? So in the United States, I remember that one time, it was, I think it was Muhammad Ali that had the honor of actually lighting this torch to signify the beginning of the Olympic Games. I would guess in Brazil, I think it was Pele. I don't know who it's going to be in Tokyo, but it's going to be a big dude, a, a famous dude, an important person. And what Jesus is saying, John is that guy. He's the one that is signifying the beginning that the kingdom of God is here. In John 1, 29, when Jesus begins his ministry, the first thing he does is goes to the wilderness and is baptized by John the Baptist. And it says, as John saw Jesus approaching, he cries out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is there, Luke records, says Jesus, after he's baptized, a dove comes down and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and he hears a voice from heaven, from God the Father, saying of Jesus, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And John 1.32 tells us to all of this, John the Baptist bore witness. And John says, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The, the day that John the Baptist baptized Jesus was the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but it was also the end of John the Baptist's ministry. Because from then on, he wasn't preaching that the kingdom was, or the Messiah was coming. It was, it was he was here. And he was saying to the people who were following him, no, go follow him, go follow him. He's the Messiah. This is who John was, but here in Matthew 11, the dude's in prison, and he's got some doubts. Thomas, he's one of the 12 disciples, three years every day living with Jesus. He has witnessed Jesus walk on water. He has seen Jesus heal leprosy. He has seen Jesus still the seas. He's seen Jesus restore sight to the blind. But now Jesus is gone. The other disciples, your, your, your crew, your closest friends, they come to you and say, we've seen the risen Jesus, but you weren't there. And you've got some doubts. And Thomas is like, until I see it for myself, I'm not going to believe it. 
And it's interesting, the text is clear. We'll see this in John in a minute. It says this, for eight days, they bickered about whether Jesus was risen or not. For eight days, he holds his ground. Until I see it, I'm not going to believe it. And and I'm going to press into this in a minute, but can I just say this right now? I am so glad these two stories are in the Gospels. Because I just think that if these men, with what they saw and what they witnessed, that if they can go through a season of doubt, I would just suggest to you that God's not surprised when we have seasons of doubts ourselves. Would you agree? And, and I think where we get confused is when we go through a season where we're struggling, when we have doubts, we're like, are we doubting or is this unbelief? And, and, and which, which is it? And I think they're very different. And there's a Scottish theologian who draws a line between unbelief and doubt that I think is helpful. I'll put this up on the screen. It says this. Alistair McGrath, he said it this way. Unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there's no God. It is the deliberate decision to reject Jesus and all that he stands for. It says doubt is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. It is the wistful longing to be sure of the things that we trust. Doubt is a stronghold that all believers will struggle with. And it doesn't mean that you don't have faith. It doesn't mean that you're living in unbelief. It means that you are in a season when your faith is weak. Throughout the New Testament, doubt is addressed over and over, always in the context of the believer, not the unbeliever. It is a stronghold that believers struggle with. It's interesting, one of my favorite dead guys, um, Charles Spurgeon, a pastor who's had quite a bit of influence as I've read his stuff on on my heart. He says it this way. He says, some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others, nevertheless have been subject to the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. Listen, God is not going to be surprised when we struggle with seasons of doubt. But, but in dealing with our doubt, we've got to make sure that we handle it biblically, handle it properly. So let me show you in these two texts, Matthew 11 and John 20, three things that I believe are contributors or factors that contribute to these two men's doubts, doubts, causes, or the causes of doubt. Here's the first one, difficult situations. Difficult situations. In Matthew 11, John is in prison. He's in prison because he has critiqued or criticized the the ruler of the area. His name was Herod. He was called the Tetrarch. He ruled that region of Judea. And and John has been critical of Herod because Herod has married his brother's wife. You think John might have had some things to say about that? So John has been critical of that. So because of that, he is now thrown into prison by Herod. That's where we find ourselves in Matthew 11. So John is wrongly imprisoned. He's living in poor conditions. I don't think he's overly surprised that he's in prison. Prophets in the Old Testament, when you speak against the king, that usually doesn't go great for you. So I'm not sure that he was surprised he was in prison. I think what caught him off guard were the doubts and the fears that he was experiencing while he was in prison. It's interesting what will happen to John the Baptist. We can read the end of the story in Matthew 14. But what happens is Herod's got him in prison. He's not really happy he has him in prison, but he's got to keep the wife happy. So Herod throws a party. He basically throws a birthday party, a happy birthday to me party. 
and he invites all the um, local dignitaries. It's a really big party. And as part of the entertainment, he brings in dancers to dance for him. One of the dancers is actually his niece slash stepdaughter. Okay? You're starting to sense there's issues in the family. And so she dances for him. Um, the text says that it pleased him, and he offers her up to half of his kingdom. It's not clear in exchange for what. And, and the, uh, his niece, uh, stepdaughter, goes back to his wife, sister-in-law. This is like Appalachia. I'm sorry. Um, it's just, it's what it is. Sorry if you're from Appalachia, write me. Um, but, but what happens is in this moment, ask her mom, what should I ask for? And she says, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And she does. And John is beheaded and dies. Not because he did anything wrong, but the king is sorry but he won't go back on an oath that he made to his wife and to his daughter. That's the story of John the Baptist. And as John the Baptist is in prison, spending his whole life as the forerunner to Jesus Christ, he's having doubts. Thomas in John 20, Jesus is his rabbi. He's the teacher that he's followed for three years. His association with Jesus has now placed his life in jeopardy. Both John the Baptist and Thomas have found themselves in difficult situations, and now they're battling doubts. And I don't think that's unique to these two guys back in the Gospels. I think we find ourselves in the very same place. When, when we go through trials, when we go through storms, when we go through difficult situations, we begin to ask difficult questions. Where's God? Why me? Why is this happening why this diagnosis? Why this limitation? Why this betrayal? Why would God allow? You can fill in the blank. So the first thing that leads us to doubt is often or a contributor is difficult situations. A close friend to difficult situations is unmet expectations. John the Baptist was promised all the way back to his dad and the angel that visited before he was born. It was said, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. John the Baptist believed the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, that he would come and liberate the nation of Israel and restore it to power and free it from Rome. But it's not happening. And gladness and joy, I'm in prison. And, and when is Jesus going to start being aggressive? When is he going to start the insurrection that he expected against Rome? I'm hearing secondhand that Jesus is hanging around with sinners and tax collectors. This is different. This is a frustration because it's an expectation that has gone unsatisfied. Thomas, he was there when the disciples were talking about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. When, when the Disciples signed up for this. They thought Jesus was going to be just like John did the insurrectionist, the guy who would lead them to liberation from Rome. They never had any anticipation at the beginning when they signed up for this three-year journey with Jesus that it would end with him dying a sinner's death on a cross. And I just think sometimes because we know God's character, we have certain expectations. Because we know God is just, we're, we're, we're rocked when we're confronted with injustice. We expect peace and yet find ourselves navigating conflict. We expect healing, but endure suffering and loss. There have been seasons in my life where I've had unmet expectations. I, 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 I had an expectation that my sister would see her 45th birthday. 
I just did. I had an expectation that my mom wouldn't spend the last 10 years of her life battling dementia. And when you get in these seasons where you're in difficult situations with unmet expectations, doubts can arise. And then let me give you a third, also associated with the other two, limited perspective. John's in prison. He can't get to Jesus. All he has is the secondhand information that he's receiving. Thomas wasn't in the room when Jesus appeared. He has to take the testimony of the other disciples, and because he wasn't there, his perspective is more limited than the disciples that actually saw the resurrected Jesus. And I think our limited perspective gets us in trouble. Question, how many of you guys like doing puzzles? Okay. Wow. Um, Let me ask another question. How many of you think that I like doing puzzles? No, no, you you just don't know me. You don't know me. So, So I don't do the puzzle thing, okay? Please do not listen to this and say, well, I think I can convince them. Buy me a puzzle, and then I got to keep passing you in church, and you're going, did you have done the puzzle yet? Because the answer is going to be no. Puzzles are on my bucket list after I'm at least 70, should I get there, okay? I might do a puzzle then. I'm not a big puzzle guy because I get frustrated because I don't like not having the full picture and having to sort through the pieces. And there are times in my life where I'm like, um, Hey, God, show me the box. Show me where I'm going. Because the worst thing about doing a puzzle is not even having a picture. That's a puzzle of only corks. That's just stupid, okay? I I don't understand why you would want to put, maybe there's some weird sense of accomplishment. I don't get it, okay? But that's sometimes what I feel like going through life, right? Like, show me the box. Like, give me a clue. Like, And I think sometimes we just have to admit that our perspective is limited and be humble enough to say, you know what, God, I think you're seeing this and you've got all the pieces and I'm struggling with my few pieces. But when I have a limited perspective and I don't understand what God's doing, sometimes I struggle with doubt. So I think three contributors that you could see in both Thomas's and the life of John the Baptist is... Difficult situations, unmet expectations, and limited perspective. Here's my concern. Martin Luther said it this way. We've got to be careful that because guys like John the Baptist and Thomas had doubts, and we struggle with doubt, it's one thing to acknowledge it. It's another thing to become comfortable with it. And and, and the issue is when we become comfortable with our doubts, well, well, if those guys did, then it's okay for me to have it. The problem is doubts don't stay corralled. You can't contain them. They start to become things that leak into other strongholds. Again, the big idea, doubt is driving you somewhere. Martin Luther said it this way. He argued that this idea of being content with doubt, suspicion, and weak faith Hear this. He said, this is the highest form of contempt we can muster against God. Here I quote him. He says this, it is tragic to return distrust and suspicion to the God of steadfast love and truth. We slander him when we refuse to trust him. So we've looked at some of the contributors to doubt. I want to look for a minute at how doubt progresses and where it leads. Here's four things, doubt's destinations. The first one is this. We begin to doubt, where is God? Where is God? We doubt God's character. We begin to lose confidence in his promises. We begin to ask ourselves questions like, does God even hear us? 
when we pray. We wonder if he loves us, if he's for our good. Not only is doubt's destination, where is God? It can also be, who is Jesus? We understand the stories, we understand the facts, but now there's a disconnect. Does his death on the cross, is that really connected to me? Does his blood really cover my sins because he died 2,000 years ago? Does that really mean that I can stand unashamed before God because I've trusted him for my Savior? And when we begin to have doubts about God and then we have doubts about Jesus, here's the next thing that happens. We start to wonder who we are. We have an identity crisis. And let me explain why that is. I think scripture's clear on this. As followers of Jesus Christ, and we've preached this so many times, our identity is in Christ. If our doubts, if our lack of confidence in God begin to make us question our relationship or the realities of Jesus, it is only natural that if our identity is in Christ, now our identity is in jeopardy. It's interesting in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, I'm just going to put up some of the summary points on the board, but let me read it to you. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. See, when we're in Christ, we understand that we're blessed. Well, I don't feel blessed. Well, let's get back to the core thing. Your sins have been forgiven. But when we have doubts about God, we don't see ourselves as blessed. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We, we lose sight of the fact that God loved us enough to chose us to reveal himself to us so that we would repent, seek forgiveness, to be united to him. We, we begin to lose our identity. It says in verse 7, it's in him we have redemption through his blood. John the Baptist, are, are, are you the one? Like, 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 are you the one that's going to free us, not just from Rome, but for our, from our sin? Verse 11, in him we have an inheritance. Verse 12, in him we have a hope. Verse 13, in Christ also we were sealed by the Holy Spirit that nobody can steal us from the grasp of God. So what happens is when we begin to have doubts about God, we begin to lose our identity because all of the promises that apply to the followers, those that are in Christ, now become in question as, as well. Can you guys see that? And then the fourth place that this leads is this. It's a very, very short drive. It's a short trip from doubts about God, doubts about Jesus, loss of self-identity to the fourth one. Why bother? When we lose our identity in Christ, it is a short journey to why bother? God doesn't see. God doesn't hear. It doesn't matter. And our doubts lead us are actually the root of many of our choices to yield to other strongholds. This, this is true scripturally. In Genesis 3, back to the story of Adam and Eve, we always go back here. But in the story of Adam and Eve, the serpent appears to Eve, and the first thing she does is she said, did God say? It's a seed of doubt planted in the mind of Eve, which leads to a series of poor choices that will eventually lead to rebellion. I was talking to my daughter last night, Catherine, and I was telling her I was preaching on doubt this week, and she's a very, very gifted teacher, and she looks at me, and she goes, if I were teaching on doubt, I'd teach from the temptations of Jesus, because it's so clear and easy to teach from there. And I'm like, thank you for telling me that three hours before I go teach from other passages. Like, that's what I needed, doubt, you know what I mean? But, but what she pointed out to me was this. She goes, in the temptations of Jesus, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he comes to Jesus 
And here's the first thing that he says in the first two temptations. If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, doubt, planting seeds of doubt. That's the source. It's his first go-to in his temptations. And when we have these doubts and we lose our identity, it's very, very quickly that our doubt now blossoms into sin. That's Satan's tactic. He's good at it. So we've talked about its causes. We've talked about where it leads. Here's a couple things, just his remedies that I want you to see from the text. Here's the first one, and this is so important. When you're struggling with doubt, don't withdraw. Don't withdraw. John the Baptist, he's in prison. Already looked at these, but in verse 2, he was in prison. It says this, he sent word by his disciples, and they went to Jesus and asked this question, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John does his best to get to Jesus. He can't go. He sends his friends. He's like, get to Jesus. Ask him the hard questions. I've got to know. I've got to deal. I've got to have a remedy for my doubts. And the remedy to doubting, the remedy for lack of confidence in God is don't withdraw. Get to Jesus. Thomas, in John 20, verse 26, we read this. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. In this case, Thomas doesn't get to Jesus in the midst of his doubt. Jesus comes to Thomas. What a beautiful picture. Jesus isn't put off by our doubts, but Thomas didn't withdraw. When Jesus comes eight days later to Thomas, did you notice who Thomas is with? He's with the other disciples. He stayed in community with believers even though he had his doubts. He was transparent. He told the other disciples, guys, I'm struggling with doubt. And please don't miss this either. He was transparent with his doubts and the other disciples didn't push him away. They didn't push him away. So this area of doubt when we struggle with these things, I need, think we need as a family here, has, a, has a, the followers of Jesus Christ in community, in a church, we need to recognize that there are going to be times when our faith is weak and we're going to struggle with doubts. If you're doubting, don't withdraw. If you're dealing with somebody who's doubting, it's a time to be patient. Get them to Jesus. Help them see Jesus. Eight days, Thomas hung out with the other disciples. Like, like what do you think that was like? Think that was comfortable? They're like, dude, we saw him. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. Thomas, nope, not going to believe it till I see it. Peter, like, bro, you are going to look so stupid when Jesus shows up. You know what we're going to do? We're going to start calling you Doubting Thomas. Let's see if that thing sticks, okay? Don't break from community. Don't withdraw. Here's something else. Remember, and I'm going to give you three things to remember when you're struggling with doubts. Remember the proofs. Remember the proofs. John the Baptist in 11.4 of Matthew, it says this, and Jesus answered them, go and tell John. So John's come and said, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you really him? And Jesus answered and said, go and tell John what you see and what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. So Jesus responds to the disciples. He goes, hey, listen, if you want to build John the Baptist's faith, if you want to conquer his doubts, give him this report. 
And as the disciples of John go back and they repeat the words that Jesus gave to them to tell John the Baptist, I've got to believe that there were some things that triggered in John the Baptist's mind, maybe the prophecies of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 35, it says this, speaking of the Messiah, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. For then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. In Isaiah 61.1, Isaiah prophesies, of the Messiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So what happens is Jesus directs the disciples of John in order to encourage John the Baptist in a season of doubt. He says, remind him of what I'm doing. Remind him what the word said about the Messiah. Said that he would heal, specifically that he would restore sight to the blind. Nobody else does that but Messiah. Did you guys know that? In the Old Testament, neither the prophets or the patriarchs were able to heal blindness. In the New Testament, Jesus' disciples do not heal blindness. That one belongs only to Messiah. And go, hey, remind him of this. Point him back to the prophecies. Point him back to God's word. Get his confidence restored by looking at the proofs. To Thomas, verse 27 of John 20, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. You have doubts? Your faith is weak? Get to Jesus. Remember his promises. Remember what he's accomplished on your behalf. There have been seasons of doubt in my life, and one of the things that my wife and I have committed to in those seasons is the acknowledgement that we just don't have all the pieces and we don't always understand what's going on. But in those seasons, often we will, we will talk about this. We even tease about it now. It's like we've prayed a lot of dumb guy prayers through the years. Like, God, I'm not smart enough to figure this out. You need to show up in a way to make yourself real so that I can have confidence that my next steps are where you're directing me to be. Do you guys pray dumb guy prayers? Asking for those things? was hanging out with a friend over the last couple of weeks. And as we were getting ready to go into Vertical Men, he was sharing with me that he has some real doubts. He's new in his faith. It's, it's a new season in his walk. It's really fun to hang out with this guy. And so I'm, I'm working with him. I'm giving him some stuff to read. We're kind of having an apologetics thing, like is the Bible really real? And how did it get here in those type of talks? And a week goes by, I talk to him after the Vertical Men's thing. And he looks at me and he goes, we don't have to talk about that stuff anymore. I believe there's a God. There's been a string of events and circumstances in my life through the vertical men's retreat into the following week that I no longer doubt that God exists and he's trying to get my attention all the time. And if you're having doubts, look to the proofs. Look at what Jesus has done in the past. Look at the historical record. But get to Jesus. Don't withdraw. Remember, he's exactly who he said that he was going to be. Here's the second thing, don't lose your identity. To John the Baptist, he tells the guys, hey, report to, back to John on the things that I am doing. And then in Matthew eleven six, 6, he says this, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. I love that phrase. Those words, not offended by me, they actually would translate better. Don't get tripped up by me. In essence, he's telling John the Baptist, don't let your current circumstances and your limited perspective trip you up and cause you to doubt. Matthew eleven eleven, 11, 
Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But listen to the next phrase. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I already talked to you about the fact that John the Baptist is the greatest uh, because of his position amongst the prophets, okay? But you need to understand, up until this point, John the Baptist is heralding a kingdom that is to come. We're part of the kingdom that is already here. And we have insight and information. Oh, and by the way, the Holy Spirit that John the Baptist didn't have. So we sit here 2,000 years later and we're like, I can't believe John the Baptist, after hearing God's voice from heaven and, and everything that he knew, would have doubts about who the Messiah was at this stage of his life. And John the Baptist is sitting somewhere going, I can't believe those people in 2021 have doubts about who Jesus is. They have the Holy Spirit. They have the whole story. They know the death and the resurrection. They're part of the kingdom. Don't lose your identity. You will walk out of this room today. You'll go back into our communities and into our culture, and you'll have moments where you doubt because the people around you who don't believe will say, man, they'll just make you feel like a fool, like you're wearing man priests. Don't doubt. Don't doubt. Don't lose your identity in those moments. Thomas sees the risen Christ. It says in verse 28 of John 20, Thomas answered him and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So he's saying you had to see to believe. How blessed are those who don't see and believe? And there's only one word I want to focus on right there. You're blessed. You're blessed. In the midst of your trials, in the midst of the seasons that cause doubt, where you lose confidence, you're still blessed. It doesn't change the reality of what Christ has done on your behalf, whether you're struggling in that moment to realize it or not. Don't let your doubts steal your identity. Don't let your doubts steal your blessing. And here's the third one. Doubts remedies. Remember, remember the proofs. Remember your identity. Remember God's love for you. The two things that, that really stick out to me in both stories is that a man like John the Baptist comes to Jesus with doubts. And I, in my mind, if I were Jesus, it would be easy for me to look at John the Baptist and be like, are you for real? Do you sense that in Jesus' response to John the Baptist? The dude has doubts, and Jesus never condemns him for his doubts. He just said, let me give you the proofs that will calm your heart in this season where you lack confidence and know that I love you in spite of your doubts. Thomas shows up. Eight days, he's denied it. Jesus appears to him. He's like, hey, put your hand in my side. Put your fingers. In. If that's what you're going to need to have confidence that I am who I say that I am, that I'm going to be there. I'm going to get to you, Thomas, because I love you in spite of your doubt. When Jesus pens in verse 11 of John 11, that John is the greatest who ever lived, John's disciples haven't even got back to John to calm his doubts and his fears. He's calling him the greatest that ever lived in his season of doubt. 
And I'm impressed in both of these stories that even when we struggle with doubt, Jesus isn't surprised. He loves us through those seasons because Jesus is a friend who will not fail, who will not forsake, and who loves us in spite of our doubts. It's a little verse. I've never really focused on it. I've never taught through the little epistle of Jude right before Revelation at the end of the New Testament. But it's interesting in closing, Jude 22 says this, and have mercy on those who doubt. Let me assure you, because of the love of Jesus Christ, what's prayed for at the end of that epistle is just Jesus to do what he's already promised and demonstrated that he would do. Have mercy on those who doubt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And um, I think most in this room, I know that I would confess that there are seasons where I just struggle. Father, I'm reminded that um, the disciples in certain seasons would cry out, increase my faith. And Father, let our cry be the same. Many in this room are going through seasons where expectations are not being met, that they're in a storm, they're in a difficulty, they're in, they're in, a, in a trial. Father, I would pray that in this season where, where doubts will arise, where the enemy will challenge, and did God say, if he is the Son of God, then why? Father, give us the strength. Teach us to remember. Remember your promises. Remember your faithfulness. And Father, we look forward to the day when doubts will be erased because we will look you in the eyes face to face and see you for who you are. Lord, come quickly. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.